Welcome to the Healthcare Hustle Podcast, a multimedia project intended to highlight the careers of leaders of color across the healthcare industry. Students, early professionals, and the community at large can expect to gain valuable, unapologetic insight on the career journeys of individuals whose lived experience and personal mission has been centered in advancing health equity. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Healthcare Hustle Podcast. Today, we are joined by Dr. Ebony Boyce Carter, Director of the Division of Clinical Research in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Washington University School of Medicine. She is known for her research involving community-based interventions to promote health equity for pregnant women and their babies. Dr. Carter, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Carter, we are so excited to have you. We like to start off every episode the same way. Um, Could you just tell the people a little bit about your story and how you became who you are today? Sure. So, you know, my story begins in Columbus, Ohio, my hometown. Um, And my mom was the executive director of the Ohio Commission on Minority Health. So I grew up hearing about minority health at the dinner table, and she established the first commission of its kind in the nation and then traveled establishing it at 35 states that replicated the model. But my mom was my favorite person. And so I spent much of my childhood on the highways and byways of Ohio as she was organizing and giving grants for innovative ideas to try try to move the needle. And and she spent most of her career just convincing people that there was a problem because in the 80s, people weren't talking about these things. And so, um, you know, when when my my mom passed away during the pandemic and when she was alive, I never acknowledged what she did. I think, I think because I wanted to stand on my own two feet and be my own person and not kind of like walk on her legacy. And it's funny because since she passed away, I open almost every talk and I close almost every talk with her and and the things that she taught me. And she used to often open her speeches by saying, in the shadow of our finest medical facilities where kings, queens, and shahs travel for the best medical care in the world, Black mothers and babies continue to die. And I think the first time I heard that was like around 1985. And here I am 40 years later, delivering babies in those fine medical facilities that she was talking about. Um, And it's still true. It's still true all this time later. So I think that my early foundations were formed really with the work that she was doing. Um, and, And now I get to take it a step further because now in 2022, we're not arguing whether these issues are real. They're, they're in the mainstream consciousness. They're in the media. I mean, you'd have to be dead not to know what's happening when it comes to Black maternal mortality and morbidity. Um, okay, so now we know what we're going to do about it. And that's really what I've dedicated my career to is what is the next step? And it feels overwhelming because it's so bad. Where do you even start? And so I, I recognize that I'm not going to be able to address everything, but in my little corner of the world, like what are the small things that we can do to incrementally move the needle for the patients that I'm serving? And that's really what drives me when I decide whether to embark on a research question. It's, is this work going to improve outcomes for those among us who have the worst outcomes? And that's kind of my North Star in terms of whether this is like worth my time, energy, and effort. Um, and so that's really what I've tried to do is, is take it. You know, I think I think my mom took it a long way forward. I'm trying to to pick up where she left off, and and really start thinking about solutions and get beyond just like defining the problem at nauseum. 
two quick things. One, got to shout out my fellow Columbus, Ohio baby over here. So all good <laughs> things come from Ohio, obviously. Right. <laughs> and two, was it always practicing medicine for you when you were growing up? Did you consider any other routes or how did that end up for you? So interesting question. And I hope that there's a life lesson in, in, in here for people who are pondering. So I said I wanted to be a doctor when I was a kid. And then I went to Stanford for undergrad and I was instantly um, felt like an imposter. So the fact that I had my nice little public high school education, my roommate had gone to Andover, these folks went to Exeter. I mean, I just felt like the preparation that people had was so different than me. I was terrified of failing. I was terrified of science classes, but I knew I was interested in public health. And, and so, you know, public health was kind of my first love and passion. And so I decided I was going to do health policy, kind of public health route. And, and that's really what I pursued. And then by a chance encounter, um, for anybody who's listening, who's in college and questioning, um, there are very few times in your life that other people are going to pay for you to have cool experiences and travel, but college is one of them. So get out, see the world. So I did this um, internship at the World Health Organization in Geneva. It was my first time out of the country. It was my, the summer after my freshman year. I was the youngest person. It was six Black women who were all from Stanford, and I was the youngest in the group. We worked for this non-governmental organization, and I can type about 80 words a minute. So they instantly used me as a secretary and then kind of pimped me out to all of these other organizations to do all of their typing. So I was working 24-7 the whole time, not learning anything, essentially being a secretary. And so the last weekend of the internship, we decided to revolt and we went on vacation. So me and another young woman went to Paris on a train on a two-star vacation, and she was a human biology major at Stanford. So as we're on the train to Paris and she's asking me, like, what am I thinking for sophomore year? I kind of admit to her. I, I wanted to be pre-med, but I'm, I'm terrified of failing. Like I, my parents have invested a lot in me and I, I can't really afford to, you know, I go, go through all of these reasons, and, but it, at the core it was fear. And she looked at me and she was like, fear is a terrible reason not to do what you wanted to do in life. And so she told me about this cool major, it was self-design, you know, and I decided to just try it, to just take the course and, and see how it was. And the first day I was hooked. It was amazing. He was like the first hour of the course was talking about kind of lactose metabolism. And the second hour was like the policy implications of it because the United States spends like billions of dollars on this milk pro program every year, but the world, world is largely lactose intolerant. So folks were whitewashing walls with it and doing all kinds of stuff. And, and I was instantly hooked. And so I took that course and I kept going. And by the end, I had done all of their pre-med requirements. Um, so that's kind of how I stumbled back into where I was supposed to be. I will add one other thing that I think was pivotal I went to Spelman um, as a domestic exchange student these, um, the fall of my junior year. And at Spelman, I feel like I rediscovered myself and my confidence. So I went from feeling like an imposter who was like, you know, at that point I was kind of a B student, maybe. I went to Spelman and they were like, you're bright and you're beautiful and you can do anything. And there was a level of accountability. I took organ lessons and my teacher would be like, Miss Boyce, I haven't seen you in the music school in the last few days. I'm like, Dr. Johnson, I'm pre-med, really. But she was keeping tabs on me and making sure that I was doing what I needed to be doing. And I don't know if it's that level of love or, you know, during the courses, I, I understood what they were saying. It's not they were speaking Greek to me. Like, I understood what was happening in real time. But after that semester, I went back to Stanford, and I essentially was a straight-A student. Um, so, I mean, also shout out to the HBCU experience and the fact that during those months, I feel like I got my confidence back. and felt like I could conquer the world again, like I, like I had in high school. And I had left that somehow when 
you know, I had left the safety of my parents' home and and gone to Stanford. There's so much in <laughs> like all that you just said. I feel like you've addressed a lot. Um, I think it's it's actually incredible and I'm gonna you know really go deep with this I think you know there's still a maybe when you were in high school I think I know for me graduating high school uh, in 2013 there was definitely still an element of PWI versus HBCUs and if you're a smart black kid and if you go to an HBCU you know potentially you won't be successful if you go to a PWI yada yada I think it's amazing that you were a Stanford grad who was able to get an experience at Spelman and still speak to the value um, of your experience at Spelman. Um, I think that's just really unique. Um, and all I can think of is like, yeah, you're an absolute unicorn. Um, one of the things- I, I actually feel like I got the best of both worlds hmm. um, because my best friends in the world are from Spelman, actually. It was those three months at Spelman because there was something else that brought us together during that time. Um, and I had an amazing experience at Stanford overall. Like I loved my education there, um, but I feel like my confidence tanked. And I think that happens mm. to so many of us. And it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. You don't feel very confident and so then you don't deliver. And I think that the, the pivotal thing for my Spelman experience is um, they helped me to a high standard and mm. helped me believe that I could actually achieve it. There's, there's a lot of, I want to, oh, I want to dive into there so much, um, <laughs> but I, I will hold myself back. I, I did want to ask, cause you mentioned something that definitely resonated with me uh, regarding your mother. Um, so my father actually passed away right before the pandemic, but he was so being, sorry. yeah, it's a, uh, it's uh, well, actually I was a little happy. He wasn't able to see the world in the state it was in, but mm -hmm. um, he was um, assistant superintendent for the school district of Philadelphia for a number of years growing up. So he was big on racial equity, but in education. And mm -hmm. I did not acknowledge or genuinely realize the impact that my father had on the communities we lived in or on myself until after he passed away. And I saw a bunch of civil unrest all around the country uh, in the summer of 2020. So you know, I started to feel like, man, I have a lot of pressure. Like there's a, I, I got, I got to do some stuff. I really got to take my dad's legacy and carry this baton forward. But for someone like you, who was sounded like you were aware of kind of like, you know, what your mom was doing, health equity was like, not a new term for you, you know, growing mm -hmm. up. Did you always feel like I have this mantle of responsibility to do something for my people or for black people? Like I have to do this because my mother has done this. I think she, she inspired both of my parents instilled that in me, um, I think in broader terms, it wasn't necessarily health or I felt like I had to go into health, but I mean, I, I think about, you know, to those who much is given much is required. And so I knew that I had been given so much, um, so many blessings and that I had an obligation to pay those forward. And I think that that could have manifested in, in multiple career paths, the way that it manifests in medicine. Um, I remember, I'm going to digress for a second. I remember being a junior faculty member when I was at Brigham and Women's. Um, I, I was a general OBGYN before I did fellowship training and, and I needed help. Like I was just like wandering and, and I had this good research idea, but it wasn't really working out. And this um, professor who was in internal medicine, a young black man, uh, took me under his wing and he owed me nothing, but he gave me so much. And at the end of that experience, when he had gotten me back on track, back to where I needed to be. I was like, I don't even know how to repay you. Thank you so much because I, I, I owe you a debt of gratitude. And he said, Ebony, it's the black tax, pay it forward. And I've never forgotten that. And so I find myself constantly 
trying to, to pay it forward. Um, and that shows up in lots of ways. Because I remember as a, um, I think I was an MPH student at the time, reaching out to a senior official at the CDC to, to meet with them. And she basically replied back. And she was like, I'm sorry, I'm too busy. I can't do it. And I was like, oh, she's not going to meet? Really? And I just remember thinking when I'm in that situation, I am not going to do that to other people. Like I am going to meet with whoever, like if I can help somebody along the way, I'm going to do it. Now, 20 years later, I see why she told me that <laughs> like I am bombarded with people wanting to like shadow. And I mean, I think I get probably six to eight of these requests a week. It's completely overwhelming. And do you know, I do my best to, to take everyone um, because at the end of the day, somebody did it for me. The problem is we are all held to the same high standard in academia. And so if you spend all of your time doing that, when I'm up for tenure, nobody's going to say like, oh, but you but you met with all of the students. And so I realized it was taking an inordinate amount of my time. So I've tried to figure out ways to still, I mean, I'm going to be honest, because somebody's probably listening like, you didn't reply to my email. I'm sure I missed some emails, right? It's overwhelming. Um, but I really try hard and I tried to figure out ways to still give back but give back in a way that's not to the detriment of your own career. And I think that that is the problem, whether you're um, a woman in medicine and academia or a person of color or the tax, whatever your tax burden is, is real. Um, I have a postdoc and I was saying the same thing to her this morning. She's an amazing mentor, is giving so much to the students working on our research group this summer. And I, I was like, but I'm worried about you. Are you not getting your own stuff? It, are, is you doing this to the detriment of your own career? And so I think it's a, uh, it's a fine line. So that's a long winding answer to your question to say, um, regardless of what we go into, I think the obligation is that somebody paved the way for you. So what are you doing to pave the way for those who come behind you? Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Carter. I, I, I will say as far as, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners will agree, sharing your journey uh, and sharing that, you know, sometimes you have to step out of your comfort zone and um, address those fears of doubt and, and and kind of worried about what what might not happen. You have to put that to the side to, to kind of step into your purpose and your calling, which you have done, um, you know, excellently. Uh, I think my question is more based on your expertise and uh, just in regards to, um, you know, the high cost around more, you know, maternal morbidity and um, why it's so important that we invest. If you if you don't mind, could you kind of go over some of those um, contributing factors as to why, um, uh, you know, women of color are so uh, emphasized in regards to, um, you know, uh, maternal morbidity? Sure, that's a loaded question. Um, I think that when you look at maternal health and the, more broadly, like the health of birthing people, um, it's the canary in the coal mine. If we don't do right by birthing people and the, the new babies being born into this world, if we don't do right by them, like we're not going to be, we're not going to do right by anyone. So the fact, this is just kind of like a little litmus test for what's happening with our healthcare system in general. Um, I'm a high risk obstetrician, but I'm not ignorant of the fact that that good pregnancy health starts long before you ever get pregnant. It, by the time, you know, we, we live in a state where we didn't do Medicaid expansion originally, like we're trying to do a little bit now. Um, but by the time patients come to see me, and I, and I will qualify this by saying my heart is, is in the community. So most of the patients that I care for um, have Medicaid insurance or no insurance. So I take care of a high poverty, high need patient population. And by and large, my patients don't have access to medical care before they get to me. 
And it's devastating because if you don't have access to preventive care and you have type one diabetes and you are pregnant, let's even say you're early, right? Like you're eight weeks, you come to see me for your pregnancy and your diabetes is completely out of control. The baby's organs have already largely formed at that point. I needed to see that patient like a couple of years before they got pregnant, if I was really going to optimize pregnancy outcomes, because most of my patients who come in with, you know, hemoglobin A1C is the measure of, you know, diabetes control in pregnancy. If it's higher than 10, the risk of having a structural defect in that baby, it's on the order of like 25%. It's really high. And so I, I think that a lot of people, a lot of my patients get to me too late just because we haven't invested in prevention. But that's looking at it from a doctor, healthcare, medical standpoint. Let's talk about the other things that are happening in a patient's life. Um, it is by no accident. You know, we talk about the social determinants of health and, and what goes into the social determinants of health. And, and clearly they're not distributed fairly nor equitably among the population. And I was in a talk done by uh, Dr. Joya Kripari, and she has a slide that I love because she, she shows the social determinants of health. And I've adapted the slide and we act like that's where things started. But how did we get there? It's because there are systematic differences in power that determine the haves and the have-nots. And how is that power distributed? Racism, in large part, determines who gets what. Um, even, even the fact that in the U.S. healthcare system, and I work in this healthcare system, I told you I prefer to take care of patients who are high need, have Medicaid, like that's where my heart is. Um, why in this country is who takes care of you determined by your insurance status? And by the way, the people who have Medicaid or no insurance, they tend to be sicker because of all of these systematic things that have happened that caused them not to have health insurance in the first place before they were pregnant. Um, and so I think that a lot of our interventions have focused on the individual patient. Like if we just change her behavior, if we just educate her a little bit more, if we missing the point, the reason why we haven't moved the needle when it comes to health disparities in this country, I would argue is because we're asking the wrong questions of the wrong people. The patient is not the problem. The patient essentially is living in these larger systems that through these stupid, irrelevant things determine kind of where you are situated in, in the pecking order. Um, so when you look at what is happening in terms of Black maternal morbidity and mortality, I think that you can't have that conversation without it being in the larger scheme of things. One of my new roles is I'm the associate editor for equity at Obstetrics and Gynecology. It's the journal of the American College of OBGYN. And one of the things, and I'm sure that I fall short too, but one of the things I try to do is I read these papers and it's like, because black women are more likely to be, and then it's this laundry list of things like single, have public insurance, going through all of these things. And you could read that and be left with the impression that there's something wrong with us. There's something inherent, like, why do we have more STDs and why do we have more, right? And that's the way that medical literature is written. And that's lazy, because it's failing to address the fact that there's nothing inherently wrong with Black women and birthing people. There are systems and structures that have put things in place that assure that it's much harder to achieve good health, not just for, for the patient, but for their offspring. Um, and so I, I think it's a, it's a loaded question, but I think that it goes into all of those things. And I admit until a couple of years ago, I was busy looking at the patient too. Um, and it was this revelation to say, if we don't look at the systems and structures in which patients are living, breathing, eating, um, we've missed the mark. 
And I think that we've been missing the mark for years. That was a great response. There's so much to unpack there that I think we're going to get to. Um, I you know I think one question I would have to kind of add on to what Brandon just asked is, you know, since you've been working in the St. Louis area, I know we especially see a higher than average um, of it already pretty rough numbers for uh, mortality rate in regards to to birthing with our with our Black and African American women. Are there factors that you've seen as a physician in the St. Louis area that you believe are contributing to those higher than normal rates? Uh, yes. So um, I trained in Boston and stayed there as a general OBGYN for three years before I came here to do my fellowship training for high-risk OB. And um, in Boston, I feel like I was so sheltered when I was there because, uh, you know, in, as part of routine prenatal labs, you send an RPR, which is, is kind of a screening test for syphilis. And I remember I practiced there for seven years. And I, at one point I was like, why do we even send this test? Like I have never diagnosed a single case of syphilis in all of my patients in seven years. Like this is a waste of public health funds. What are we doing? I can't tell you how many cases of syphilis I have treated since I got to St. Louis. Like syphilis should be like eradicated. What the heck is happening? And, and one of the major differences and I'm, I'm gonna talk in terms of health system and then larger, um, in terms of health system, Romney Care passed in Massachusetts my intern year, my first year of medical training. So every single patient there had health insurance. There is a certain safety net that caught you. There, like you couldn't fall below a certain level. Um, so that meant that your hypertension and your diabetes and your all, all of your other things tended to be better managed. And I'm not trying to argue that, that having access to health care is the end-all be-all because it's not. It's a, there's a lot more than that, but it's a good start. So I feel like that was one of the the major, like that was one of the rude awakenings when I got here, because I found myself advocating and fighting for my patients about things that were just stupid. <laughs> it's obvious that, the, that, that if you have access to things, these things, your life should be better. And when I got here, it felt like it was just a, a desert where we're having to argue about, about ridiculous stuff. Um, the other thing is in St. Louis, you know, uh, my mom grew up in East St. Louis, actually. So you know, I have, I have an affinity, like lots of my family still live here. So in, in many ways, it feels kind of like my second hometown, but um, St. Louis did racism really well and did redlining really well. Um, I live in the central West End um, and you just go a couple of blocks from, from my house and it's, it's unrecognizable, right? Like you, you cross over Delmar Avenue and it's night and day. St. Louis did has done, is doing racism very well, right? I, I think that most cities in, in the country can say that, um, but you can see systematic um, disenfranchisement of certain groups in St. Louis, and you can see where the investment happened and where it did not happen. Um, and most of the patients that I serve um, live in North St. Louis city and county and live in areas where you can see that there was um, essentially divestment. Not, not, not just today, right? Like this is over, over decades of time. Um, and I think that the healthcare outcomes that we see are a direct result of those things. Um, I, I even think about racism. When I was in Boston, I remember walking into a room as a, a brand new attending. And uh, the patient I was seeing was a middle-aged black woman who uh, drove the T, like the public transportation in Boston. And before I even opened my mouth, she was like, oh, will you be my doctor? 
so proud to see me as a young Black woman. She was like, I've never had a Black doctor before. I mean, before we could even get into her visit, she's just like bursting with pride. Um, And then when I got here, I was really excited to have a patient population um, that was predominantly Black women. I, I mean, I was excited to have a patient population of women who look like me. Um, and that benefit of the doubt that I often got in Boston, I didn't get here. Um, it's almost like my identity as being affiliated with like the larger organization or hospital was greater than my identity as identifying as a Black woman. And I didn't understand it at first. Um, and the longer I've been here, the longer I've received my own health care in the systems, I get it now. Because I I have been discriminated against. I have had racism in my own care. I have been talked down to like I have no sense and and don't know what's best for me. Um, But when I get sick of it, I just drop a little hint that lets them know that I know a little something and they figure out that I'm a physician and suddenly they straighten up and my care tends to get better. What do you do when you don't have a privilege card to pull? And most of my patients have no privilege card to pull. So now when I walk in and I don't get the benefit of the doubt, I get it because I have been on the receiving end of healthcare that was substandard in some ways because people made assumptions about me by just looking at me. Um, yeah, and, and that is a hard pill to swallow because I don't think that as physicians, as medical professionals, that we wake up in the morning thinking, I think I'll be racist today. But we are the sum total of our accumulated life experiences. And that means that we all have bias. Um, I have grown up in this kind of like white dominated paradigm. So that means that even as a black woman, I have the potential to have bias and cause harm for my patients. And I think until we get beyond, it's not like, oh, you're inherently a terrible, bad person, but we all have it. We all apply it in different ways. I think until we get past that, it's going to really be hard Um it's going to be hard to um, to fully address it because I think people are all in their personal feelings about like, I'm not a bad person. No, I'm not saying you're a bad person, but you're biased and racist, as am I. Um, and until we say that, we're not going to make it better. And to also realize, I, I'll say this last thing, I was giving a talk once in Arizona and it was about equity and racism in medicine. And a physician came up to me afterwards who worked on I'm an Indian reservation and said to me, you know, you're talking about racism. I get reverse racism because I work on the the reservation and patients like they don't give me the benefit of the doubt. They think I'm trying to hurt them, trying to harm them. And he's going on and on about all of these things. And I was thinking you have missed the point because who had the power in the relationship? Who had the power to, to change the outcome or circumstances of the other person's life? It's not them. Um, and so I think without talking about power dynamics, you also lose the the nuance of this conversation. Yeah, this is um, fire conversation. My soul is being filled and lifted right now, honestly, because I do feel like a lot of individuals in the organization, such as ourselves, sometimes of color, we find it difficult to talk about these kinds of things, even openly. And, you know, anything that has an ism after it is almost like unspoken um, for certain folks. And I definitely think for me, uh, Brandon and I, Nigel and I, we've all talked about this, um, being from the East Coast, moving to the Midwest, I was like, what is going on? It was the most overt, perverse um, display of racism I'd ever seen in my life. 
And the, the thing that was hard for me um, is I was coming from an HBCU. So I was coming from Morehouse School of Medicine with my mm-hmm. Master of Public Health in Atlanta. I did an internship at Duke. So I thought I had been exposed to everything there was to be exposed um, to. And even after I was selected to do the fellowship here, I was I found myself in the first four months saying, like, why did y'all bring me here? Like, why would this group of you know people sit in a room and make a decision and select <laughs> me? Right. And so I always and I definitely think about, you know, someone like yourself, because, again, you've been at the at elite institutions, you know, all around this nation, some of the best in the world. These kind of places, I watch you or, you know, whatever, will try to recruit typically the Dr. Carters of the world and, you know, may prop up, you know, that NIH grant that you got that has to deal with health equity or something or they'll, but my observation is sometimes it's still a struggle for that individual. It's still a struggle for the Dr. Carters to go into a room and put out all this on the table. So, you know, for you, you talked about that black tax and you talked about sometimes how that may disrupt someone's professional development. But can you speak a little bit more about how this has impacted your personal development or just your mental health as a physician, as a human, um, as a mother, as a community member, all these different things? Sure. Um, And, you know, I'm going to get to that. But I want to start with where when you said, like, why did they bring me here? So we just had our resident graduation and um, I presented one of our residents who was the first black resident that we had had at WashU in years. And, um, you know, there, there was a black resident when I first got here, she graduated and then there was nobody. And I, I made it my mission. But, but I also kind of had that same question, like, what am I doing bringing someone into this environment to be the first in a long time, to be the only? Um, and there's racism in medical school, too, and in medical training. I remember being on my, I was at Duke for medical school, and I remember being on my surgery rotation and the residents inviting my classmates out to, to drinks. Did they invite me out to drinks? I didn't want to go anyway. But does it matter if you're out drinking with the people who are going to grade you? I would suggest that it does. And so it's so subjective that, you know, as I think about my training, like there were, you know, that, that Twitter feed, Black in the Ivory, as I was reading through those, you know, a couple of years ago, I was crying because it made me think of all of the experiences that I had suppressed, because if you took the time to dwell on them, you wouldn't be able to function. Like it was pointless to, I couldn't change it. There was nothing I, I felt like I was being treated unfairly, but what you're going to do, you're going to get over it and keep moving. And I hadn't actually processed those things, but, but back to this young woman, when she and her husband came to St. Louis to find a place to stay, my husband and I took them out to dinner at the WashU faculty club had a nice wine dinner with them and everything. And at the end, she said, Dr. Carter, why are you being so nice to me? And I said, because I've been waiting for you for five years. <laughs> like, I've been, I've been trying and, and how brave you are to come here and to be the only one. And I was the only Black faculty member, right? So she's really, and so I was like, it is, I am, I am making it my business to make sure that you are okay, that you know that if something doesn't seem right or fair, that I can't guarantee I can change it, but I, I will be here for you. I will try to support you in every way possible. And so I think that as I think about my personal and my professional life, I thank God for guardian angels at the steps along the way. Um, and not all of those guardian angels were black necessarily, right? But like people who looked out for me along the way. Um, I, I had a situation where, you know, somebody asked me here who was in a position of power, we've seen a lot of black faculty 
who have not had the typical measures of success that you need in academia to get to where you need to go, right? Like people either left or, you know, didn't get tenure or, or whatever. And so somebody was like, so, you know, how did you do it? Like, how did you get tenure? How were you able to do what you have been able to do? I was thinking by the grace of God, like, I, (laughs) I don't know. And then I thought about it. And during my fellowship, uh, I had a, a particular faculty member who took me under his wing and looked out for me. So even when I felt like stuff wasn't fair, or somebody had it out for me or whatever else, like he, you know, basically said like, you're not crazy. You know, like this, things are happening. Things aren't always right, but I'm going to look out for you. And he did. And so I feel like part of it was just knowing I wasn't crazy and having somebody who was brilliant and amazing, who I looked up to, who just kind of like wrapped me in that cloak of protection during like that really kind of sensitive time during my career. Um, and then I think also in, in terms of the personal, um, my sister-in-law always says, be careful who you cleave to. Um, I am so grateful for my husband um, because, uh, you know, there's people in life who just always kind of build you up and you're like, you're amazing. You're, and, and he definitely builds me up, but he also can call me out and be like, oh, you could have done a little bit better on that. Or we can talk and pro- we can do that for each other. We have that healthy banter where it's like, we can call each other out, but we can also be each other's best supporter and cheerleader. And so I think also having the balance of a partner in life. So we have three little girls um, and, you know, whether life is really good or challenging in that moment, I can't think of a better person to be. I'm going to have to make sure he listens to this now. <laughs> I can't think of a, a better person to be on life's journeys with who like when things aren't good, I trust him to like give me wise counsel and strategize and, and figure out how to get out of it. Also being in medicine, we don't learn business. Like when my husband was a consultant and learning business and all of those things, he tells the story that um, when he was 23, he was a consultant and his boss was like, to be so young, you understand really complex business subjects really well, like mergers, acquisitions, hostile takeovers. Like, how do you understand this stuff? And he was like the church because he was a pastor's kid. <laughs> like you learned all that stuff in church. Um, but, but he learned business at a time when I didn't. So even when I'm trying to like debate business decisions or I'm not sure how to get through it, I think we cripple people in medicine without having business exposure. I know that I can go to him for that kind of advice and wise counsel. So be careful who you cleave to, like choose somebody who is going to like make your life infinitely better and not challenging or worse. Well, I love it. I love every bit of that um, from start to finish. Um, you shout out to... Uh, um, Mr. Carter, uh, um, you know, if he's listening. Well, um, and if he's, I'll, I'll say Dr. Carter. Dr. Carter, apologies, apologies. Great family. Um, so he, he's, he's a powerhouse too, bro. So you got ah, Okay, okay. We're going to edit that part out. Anyways, no, Dr. Carter, Dr. Carter um, you, you know, just want to say again uh, to, to your points earlier in regards to just um, the effects of system, systemic racism um, on healthcare and um, all that goes into that. I'll, I'll and I think, yeah, Winston told me this, and it always applies when it comes to St. Louis. If you want to see the effects of Jim Crow on a modern day city, you come to St. Louis. Mm-hmm. But I won't belabor the point. I will just kind of switching gears on that positive light. As, as you have um, so eloquently put, you have a great support system. You have people behind you and on, beside you who are, who are uplifting you, empowering you. And I do want to take this time, if, if you could, just share maybe what our listeners could do as far as mothers, um, sons, um, you know, husbands, what they can do to, to better support, um, you know, uh, maternal health as far as in the Black community. What can we do to better prepare for healthy um, um, pregnancies, 
Um, what can we do for better outcomes in ourselves? Not so much as the system, but just as far as what we can do to better prepare for that. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that that question is hard because um, I want to, before I answer it, I want to give the caveat that sometimes when you say these things, people can interpret them as saying that like, if something happened to you, it's because you did something that was wrong or, or that you had a shortcoming or whatever. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many people, I'm a high-risk obstetrician. So you don't really want to be my patient. By definition, if you're seeing me, something has not gone right with the pregnancy. And one of the things that I always uh, preface my consults with when a person has had, you know, like let's say that they came in, you know, were in preterm labor and had a baby at 25 weeks. I always try to say, there's nothing that you did or didn't do that got you here. Or there's nothing that you could do in the future or not do. Like it wasn't your behavior that, that got you here. Um, because people will be like, oh, man, if I went to the mall for eight hours yesterday. If I hadn't been in the mall, like I wouldn't have had this baby today. And clearly it's not the mall, but the state of the human condition is to try to figure out what's wrong. So I just want to put that out there that, you know, people go into pregnancies and do the best that they know how to do. And so it's not anyone's fault. That being said, to be responsive to your, your question, I think one is that you establish the care um, before you need it. So it would be really nice if like you're not in that like acute situation where something's going on, but like establish good OBGYN care with, you know, whether it's an obstetrician, a family practice doc, a, a nurse midwife, you know, establish that, that care and that relationship beforehand because you will see when you go for that annual exam, do you feel comfortable with that person? Are they responsive? Um, you kind of all of those things. So I think it's nice to have the relationship before you you need it, and and, and a, a person that you trust and have relationship with. <laughs> I think the other thing is never be afraid to like get a second opinion or keep it moving, um, because when when a patient tells me they want a second opinion, I'm like happy for you to do that because if you go and they agree with what I said, then we're good. And if they don't, then you can evaluate the two and figure out what to do. But if something doesn't make sense or you're not feeling comfortable with it, like you're not stuck with that. It's, it's a decision. So, you know, go where you feel more comfortable. I have patients that have driven hours to get to me because they were looking for a black obstetrician, because you hope that if you see somebody who looks like you, that hopefully they see more value in your life, that they are going to listen and be more open and honest. Um, the thing is, there are not enough black OBGYNs or black midwives to go around. So everyone is not going to have, um, to have a, a clinician who looks like you. I would argue you don't, you don't necessarily have to. I think increasing the pipeline is the whole other conversation that we could have on a different day that's important. Um, but, but even if it's not a person who looks like you, that you have spent enough time with them, that you have hopefully built some trust. Um, and then I think also, uh, looking for evidence-based techniques that have been shown to improve health outcomes. So I do a lot of group prenatal care in, you know, my research and group prenatal care is great, but it's not like I just woke up one day and was then decided, oh, this is a great way to provide care. I got interested in it because it showed that it was a, it reduced the risk of having a preterm birth significantly. And preterm birth is one of the, the pregnancy outcomes we harp on because what's the number one predictor of whether a baby makes it to celebrate their first birthday? It's if they were born too soon. So if you could just fix that one, you would fix a lot of downstream things. And so there was some compelling evidence showing that group care improved preterm birth rates. Um, I did a meta-analysis, kind of like looking at all of the studies that have been, have been done in the area when I was um, a fellow. And in 2016, published a paper saying that wasn't true. 
there wasn't actually a difference in preterm birth rate for if you, you know, got your hair in a group or not. And I got hate mail over that publication, but I did a subgroup analysis for black patients. And guess what? For black women, there was a 45% risk reduction in preterm birth for patients who got their hair in a group. And so I would argue that if you are affluent and are going to have a good birth outcome, regardless, like you're, you know, you're a white woman living in West County um, who is well off, is group care going to move the needle for you? Probably not, but you'll like it. Um, if you are a patient who's in a high risk group for having a, a, a poor birth outcome, is it going to move the needle for you? And I would argue, yeah, probably. So as a high risk obstetrician, I you know, am now applying group care to patients who have diabetes and then trying to prevent diabetes. And we have another trial, the Elevate, um, that is basically embedding a behavioral health intervention into prenatal care um, to try to address like the, the burden of like mental health issues in pregnancy. So um, man, I got off on a tangent. I'm sorry. <laughs> I only remember what the original question was. Um, but oh, it was, it was empowerment. So evidence-based things. So I think group care. Um, if you can find a place that practices group care, um, having doulas, um, having home health, like nurse visiting programs. Um, I think all of those are things that have been shown to improve outcomes. And essentially it, it, it nails down to having an advocate. Sometimes when you're in labor, it's hard to advocate for yourself. And so having a support system of people around you who are going to advocate for you, I think is helpful. And the last thing I'll say about group care is, you know why I think it's working? I think it's inadvertently working on the healthcare providers and the healthcare systems. Because when I got into it, I was like, oh, kind of the same thing I was telling you before. Oh, it changes behavior and more time for education and support and all that stuff. True. Um, but, you know, if I'm in my individual clinic and I always have a 4.30 patient, that patient's always late and I'm always late to pick up my kids because, you know, she's late and I'm pissed because I'm like, you, you are messing up my life and, and getting my kids on time. You put that same patient in a group and then I realized that, you know, she took three buses to get here and her partner is unkind to her. She has food insecurity. So who's worried about insulin when you don't even know what you're going to eat tomorrow? And then suddenly all of the things that annoyed me before, suddenly I see her with empathy and love and kindness and compassion, because at the end of the day, we're, we're both people and I can relate to her. Um, so is group care actually working because it's taking that typical 10 minute wham, bam, thank you, ma'am visit that is just kind of checking the boxes of what you have to get done that day to developing true relationship. And even if the clinicians are, you know, upper middle class and live in the suburbs and are a different religion or social background or whatever than the patients that they serve, it's only through time and relationship that you actually see things that, you know, even if you're biased and racist, I don't know if I can change that. But can I change the level of empathy and compassion you come to patient care with? Maybe. Um, and, and so that's one of the things that we're exploring with group care too. Really awesome. I, I just wanted to, to go back because a thread I'm noticing throughout your story um, that I think is really impactful for a lot of successful professionals generally, but especially professionals of color, is that it seems like you had a lot of mentors and champions who were able to kind of step in and either provide an umbrella or hold the hand or point you in the right direction. What advice would you give for young aspiring uh, Black uh, physicians or aspiring physicians as they continue along that journey, how to reach out to mentors, how to find these people who can help you along your journey? Because I think, and I think everyone here agrees, it's just such a critical step to, to making it far in your career, regardless of what you want to do. 
Yeah. So I think that the mentor-mentee relationship is a two-way street. I think that I came to realize that too late in my career, because I will tell you, I was trifling. <laughs> I was a trifling mentee. When people do stuff that irritates me now, I'm like, ooh, I was guilty. Like I did all of these same things. Um, and so, you know, I'd say I'm, I'm an introvert at heart and a little bit shy. People don't, don't realize that, but it's like, I take, it takes me energy and effort to put myself out there. And so, you know, if you go to a talk and you see someone and they speak and it really resonates with you, or even if you take a course, going up afterwards, meeting that person saying like, is it okay if I reach out to you? Um, and then in terms of the emails, like I said, I, I get literally six to eight emails a week of people, of students, many I've never met before asking me for stuff. I got one yesterday, that yesterday morning and it said, good morning. And then it launched into it. That tells me you took no energy effort, nothing to, to send that. So was I pressed to reply to that? I may reply, I may not, but you know, like, what is that? So when a person actually has like taken the energy and the effort to like do their homework, come to the table. I mean, even when you have mentor meetings now, and once again, I didn't know this, I didn't do it, but it's, it's much better if you come into the meeting knowing what you wanted to achieve from it. So you come in with an agenda. These are the things that I would like to, to work through today. These are my goals. Do you have any? Okay, let's get set. Let's go to work. Um, but time is limited. And any time that I am spending, especially after hours with students or mentees or anything else, is time that I'm taking away from my babies. So I need for that time to be well spent. And so as a mentee, think about if you were the mentor, how would you want to do things? Like how, how would you want your time to be spent? Because I think that the mentees who get the most out of me are the people who come prepared. And even if they don't know the answers, right? Because that's why you're there. You're trying to learn that they're hungry, that they're, that they're yearning for something. That if we talk about something, I know that they are going to follow it up and, you know, follow through and, and produce it. Like those are the people who, like I worked with a, um, a student on a project and they had not done much research before and were just kind of flailing like all over the place. I think we were getting frustrated with each other. So we, we've been working on this paper now for like 14 months. I'm sure at, at various points, we, we both wanted to throw up our hands. Well, we submitted the paper yesterday and it's good. It's really good. And I think that in the last week, the student, it's like, the light bulb went off and I saw that hunger, that passion. He was trying to get it. We were sending drafts back and forth. And I mean, yesterday when he submitted the paper, I felt really good about it because I had seen the journey and how far we had come and that by the end he had taken ownership of it. Um, and so if you want to get the most from mentoring relationships, people who are like, oh, I don't have any good mentors. What are you putting into it? Um, because everybody is not meant for everyone. You will find people who are willing to pour themselves into you and when you find that, it's a gift, treasure it, value it, and then make sure that you are doing your part in the relationship too. Because like I said, I, I, I learned way too late. It's a two-way street. And early on in my career, I was not pulling my weight. So sorry to all of my early mentors. Wow. Um, okay. This is, um, that's excellent advice. I think the after lecture, like, hey, can I get your card? I think that's like one of the best plays for anybody listening for sure. Um, we're coming up on time and Dr. Carter, again, we, we really do appreciate, um, just all the insight you've been able to lay out. One of the things, and I wrote it down and it really resonated with me and sorry to, you know, uh, send you out on a loaded question. Um, uh, one of the things that you said, uh, good pregnant health or good pregnancy health starts well before, right. You know, a patient shows up to a clinic, um, that terminology, I like to think almost like in the mindset of an average Joe or Jane sometimes, I feel like that terminology was just new to me, pregnant health. 
and thinking about the health of a mother years before she's pregnant. I mean, in my, I feel like in our community, sometimes it's like, Hey, I'm pregnant, got a baby. And it's like, okay. So for me, I'm like, Oh, thinking about so much. Um, given that pregnant health has been under attack or some would, you know, say it just received a pretty big blow, um, with the repeal of Roe v. Wade, um, what were your initial reactions? We've been talking about the system, all these isms and schisms that exist. Something like this repeal is, is huge, right? This is like a, a big blow. And for aspiring professionals, I know as a professional, a young professional myself, it was almost a couple of days I had to detox from social media because I really didn't know how to process all of the conversation that we were getting ready to potentially have. Um, so just in light of a decision like that or what I would just say is an attack on racial equity and attack on health equity um, from a lot of different sides. What is kind of the encouragement, the advice that you have to give to other individuals and young folks like us? I guess I'll answer that. I remember as a kid, um, as I, I, I might've been 12 or 13 and I was realizing all of like the ills of the world or the things that weren't right. And I remember saying to my mom, like, why'd you even have me? Like you brought me into this messed up world. Like, how do you even bring a kid into a world like this? And she looked at me and she was like, Abby, it's because you hope that they're going to make it a better place. And as I think about the things that are happening and, um, you know, I interviewed a, a person for a position here recently who, who clearly is mortified. I mean, the idea of being an OBGYN in a state like Missouri right now is terrifying. So, I mean, for, like, just think about the implications of people who are not going to want to come here to practice because you don't want to feel like by doing the right thing for your patient, you're risking your freedom. And the thing, my answer to her in that moment was um, that first of all, knock on wood, there I have had to do things as a physician that I feel like were not in the best interest of my patient because of the law. Um, it has never like, you know, it, it it has never gone so far as to like I feel like um, I ethically, morally could not live with that. But in in the post Roe v. world, post Roe v. Wade world. I don't know if that's going to continue to be the case. Like at, at some point it might be like, I can't live with this anymore. But if people who have a heart for patients for doing the right thing are not here in a place like St. Louis, where our healthcare outcomes for so many people in our population are abysmal, right? If we leave, if we jump ship, um, will that do anyone any good? And so I would argue that for uh, me and my colleagues who are here taking care of pregnant patients in the state of Missouri, we are here to fight the good fight um, and to try to do what's right. And it's really hard when um, laws and legislation and, and Supreme Court decisions tie your hands in terms of doing the, the, the best for your patients. But I will say the, the one good thing about practicing in St. Louis instead of like the middle of Texas is that Illinois is only 10 minutes away. So at least like, you know, it, it's, it, it doesn't cover people who are so sick that they can't have an outpatient procedure. It doesn't cover them. But, um, you know, at least for, for a lot of our patients, they can still get access to the care that they need. But yeah, it's, it is, um, it's disheartening. And maybe this is naive of me, but I have, you know, thought I wish that some of the people who are so fervent of their, in their beliefs, um, I wish that they could come to work with me for a week. Because I'm a Christian and we can agree on the fact that I would love for the, the abortion rate in this country to fall. We can agree on that, um, but we, we disagree on how you do it. And 
criminalizing it and outlawing it doesn't do it. You do things that make it so that the decision to have a child isn't potentially catastrophic for your entire life. Um, and, and I think that there's years of data that show that if you give people access to the things that they need, then oftentimes like that being the only option doesn't seem like it's true anymore. The other thing is my patients make really good decisions for themselves. You know, like if you give people access to the things that they need, they make really good decisions. Um, and I think that my biggest fear in all of this is, you know, when they say, well, you could still do an abortion for, you know, a life, a life-saving measure for, for the patient. How close to death is close enough? So if I know that my patient ha barely has any heart function and this pregnancy has a 50% chance of killing them, um, is it enough that the patient could die? Is tomorrow close enough or is it in a few months? I don't know. And when I'm taking care of that patient, the only interest I should have at heart is the best interest of that patient. Don't bring into it, am I going to go to jail? Am I going to lose my livelihood? Am I going to lose my medical license? Like my, my stuff should not be factoring into the decisions of like what's best for my patient. And that's like one of the fundamental problems of what is happening here. So I will tell you, I'm scared. I'm scared for my patients. I even thought about my babies. I was like, you know, like they're little now, but, uh, but are they going to live in a world where, you know, I have three little girls, are their reproductive options going to be taken away? And I thought about it and I'm like, you know what, they're going to be fine. If I have to take them to Canada, I will do whatever I need to do to make sure that my babies get what they need. The issue is when you don't have that privilege card to pull and that's who's going to be most impacted. And that's what really breaks my heart because I am not being dramatic when I say people are, I was going to say, are going to lose their lives because of this. It, it's probably already happening. Um, yeah. So it breaks my heart. And, and actually I can close with a, with a quick story that I think illustrates it. So I took care of a patient once who um, at the anatomy scan at 19 weeks was, was diagnosed with a, the baby had a congenital um, defect that essentially was not compatible with life. So, so this, this, you know, fetus was never going to live in the outside world. Um, and we counseled the patient about all the options. The patient opted to continue the pregnancy for her own personal reasons. Fine. We supported her in that we continue. And, uh, a few weeks later came into the hospital with a massive blood clot in the lungs that killed her. And so, you know, a little over halfway through this pregnancy, she, um, essentially died of something that was a direct complication, a direct result of this pregnancy that was never going to result in a, a living human being and left her husband without a wife, left her children without a mother. And the thing is, as devastated as all of us were about this death, it was her choice, right? She chose to continue the pregnancy. You know, pregnancy is not without complication. The worst complication on that list is death. And if she had been compelled to carry that pregnancy that, that resulted in the loss of her life, that would have just been unconscionable. And, and that's the world that we're living in. So like, let us not pretend that pregnancy was, is without complication. Heck, I make my living because pregnancies are fraught with complications. Um, and yeah, it's, um, it's heartbreaking. I think... I think as heavy as it is, that's a great note 
to end on. You know, thank you so much for sharing your story with us, for sharing your journey. Um, we're going to skip the rapid fire questions because I know you've got somewhere to run off to, but where can people find you? Um, do you have a Twitter, anything like that for our listeners to be able to check you out and see what you're doing and see your research? Sure. I'm pulling it up now because I'm a reluctant Twitter user, <laughs> but I am um, at Ebony Carter MD, uh, E-B-O-N-Y Carter MD. Um, so yeah, check me out on Twitter. I, I get on there sometimes reluctantly. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for everything. Brandon Winston, anything you want to add as we close? Uh, no, this is excellent. Uh, much needed context. Um, and I think this is going to be informative for a lot of folks. It was definitely insightful for me and uh, took a lot away from it. So I appreciate you. Thanks so much to all of you for having me. I enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. you Dr. Carter. Thank you. Well, that's it for the episode. And we want to thank you for listening to the Healthcare Hustle podcast. Make sure to check us out each month on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and stay up to date with the Healthcare Hustle fam by following our page on LinkedIn. The marathon continues, so keep on hustling.